please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Seth, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hezeroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the, wow, <clears throat> by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to all the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtoreth and Edri. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey, and go to the hill country of the Amorites, and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, in the lowland, and in the Negeb, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and give to them and to their offspring after them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Just as a reminder, uh, we are in some ways preaching through the whole Bible. So where our custom is normally to kind of go verse by verse, here we're going to be looking more like at a book and even more than that. So I, you know, the, the choice is always to choose a passage that somehow kind of gets right in the middle of the story. In this situation, I almost wonder whether I, you know, not consciously, but subconsciously thought, here's a great passage to give Ruthie to read. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't she do like a fantastic job at it too? Well, hey, uh, how about I pray before we continue? Um, Father, you are here with us right now. You have made us your people. You have brought us into relationship with you. And you are a God who gives. You give us so much. And you give us promises that strengthen us and give us hope. And so I pray for us this morning that you would give us greater clarity and certainty and a vision for what you have in store for us. That we might hope more fully in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so Friday, um, about halfway through the day, I went out for a walk. Um, as sometimes happens, Joel came home for lunch from school, and he wanted to walk, walk back to school because it was a beautiful day. And uh, it, was, it was a beautiful day in that kind of in-between temperature so that Jennifer and I had jackets on, Joel had shorts and a long sleeve on because that's just kind of the way it works in our family. But it was totally what I needed to do. I had been kind of hunched over writing all morning so my back was kind of sore. And then we, when we came out and we were walking, I mean, it was postcard blue is what I call the sky. I mean, not a cloud in the sky. You could hear the, the, the leaves being blown around, and also you could hear the, the, the leaf blowers at the same time. But there's also that smell of fall. You know what I'm talking about, how you can start smelling the, the leaves that are on the ground, and it, you can, there's this, this scent. And we have this game in our family that, you know, if you can catch a leaf when it's still coming down, you, we don't really give a reward, we just get kind of honor points. And Joel got one and I didn't, so he was feeling smug for the rest of the walk. 
And it was just really nice. Um, so it was this beautiful walk, came home, had you know, some yogurt to eat for lunch, and then settled back to enjoying kind of the way that the pen scratches the paper as I was continuing to write. Now, none of those details are at all extraordinary, and you might be wondering, why am I, I sharing this? This is just normal. This is just, that's just the stuff of life. And that actually is my point, that life is about stuff. Not, not only about stuff, but that a key central part of our lives is physical. I mean, we are physical creatures. It's not just true to say we have bodies, as if that's something that we could just kind of throw off if we wanted to. We are embodied creatures. Our bodies is a part of who we are. And our lives are physical, material lives. There's not really almost anything that you can separate from the material aspect of this life, right? I mean, we, we move. So much of what we do, we move. Sometimes it's strenuous with exercise or work. Sometimes we're barely even noticing our motion as we're thinking and scratching our heads. We, we feel, we feel smells, smell of fresh bread or sour milk. We, we taste, you know, whether it's cheesecake or, or salty tears. We, we feel euphoria, we feel exhaustion, we hear music or the sound of the Cubs winning on the radio. There's so much that is physical. It's, it's central to our lives, isn't it? In fact, this, this centrality of the material world can sometimes almost overwhelm so that you, you see this kind of common belief or perception that material is, is all there is. It's what's called materialism, that, that everything is about the, the stuff of life, that if you can't experiment on it, if you can't feel it or touch it or somehow demonstrate its existence, then it's not real, that there isn't souls, that there isn't the afterlife, that there isn't God, because the material is so obviously here, other things are forgotten. Now, I don't have time to, to kind of explain why that's wrong. My guess is I don't need to convince most of you that we realize that we're more than just meat computers and that, that life is more than just about the stuff of life and that God is beyond us. But, you know, there's an opposite, opposite mistake that can be made. And my guess is it's actually the more common mistake in Christian circles. If, if the other mistake was materialism, we can call this one spiritualism, and that is to underemphasize the material, physical world. To say that, you know, the, the stuff of life is not important. In fact, it's almost a real distraction from the spiritual stuff that is significant. And this spiritualism is actually a, a, a common way of seeing the world that you can see throughout human history. About 2,000 years ago, you had this philosophy called, uh, now it's called Neoplatonism. Um, it also is closely connected to Gnosticism. The name doesn't matter, but, but what was generally believed is that what is real and what is important and perfect is all in the spiritual world. And that the physical stuff that we can see is just kind of the residue. It's just a shadow. It's just an echo of what's really the important things. 
And so as humans, we're kind of in this unfortunate situation where our spirits, our souls are weighed down by the physical bodies. And so really what life is about is trying to transcend our physicality, to try to have our minds focused on what is spiritual in the hope that one day when we die, we can cast off these shells and finally experience the spirituality that we were meant for. That's, that's the spiritualism. And it's totally not Christian. But yet it has influenced the way that Christians view the world more than I think we sometimes recognize. Consider for a moment, you know, some of the songs we sing. Here's one, and, and my goal is not to criticize this song because I know it can be sung in the right way, but just think about the words, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim. What is that implying? That, that get your focus on the spiritual and the physical, you realize it's not important. Or, or, or consider the way we speak sometimes of going to heaven, as if that's the real destiny of life. There's an old Jim Reeves song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. My, my hope is not in the physical. There's nothing about the physical that's important. I'm just passing through and someday I will escape the physical and experience the spiritual and that's where my life really is. Do you hear that? That's spiritualism. That is saying that the material isn't important. And I think that comes from the way we tell ourselves the story of salvation. If salvation is just Jesus dying so that we can be forgiven, so that we can go to heaven. If that's the whole story of the Bible, then it's the most natural thing in the world to say this stuff, the things that we're sitting on, the things that we're feeling, that's the unimportant thing. And our goal is to get past that, to go and be spirits with God because that's what matters, because that's why Jesus died. But that isn't what scripture says. God is not materialist, that's obvious, but he's also not spiritualist. And if we pay attention to the story that we've been hearing, we will realize how different the biblical story is from the one that I just told. I mean, let's just kind of revisit the story that we have been considering over the last six weeks. Think week one, you know, God in the beginning was just God. God is everything in the beginning, and he decides, I want to share my joy. And so he makes us. But what does he do before making us? He speaks and makes the universe. Trillions of galaxies. That was in the news this week. They've discovered that it's not hundreds of billions. It's trillions of galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of stars. He spoke and he made it. And he made platypuses. And he made mango trees. And he made bugs. And he made volcanoes. And he made sunrises. And then he made us. And when he made us, he gave us things to do in this physical world. He gave us work. He gave us gardening. He told us to, to explore and to name the physical world and, and to have babies. God wanted to share his joy, and how did he do it? He made a physical world for us to experience his glory through. Then week two, 
the story is we broke it. We broke everything when we rebelled against God. And, and through sin, now the world becomes in some ways something that we fear because there's death and there's disease. And at the same time, it's something that we worship because we don't want to worship God. So we, you know, we, whether we worship the sun or we worship delight and comfort, we start worshiping the world itself. And so what does God do? Does God then say, you know what, this whole matter, physical stuff, this is way too complicated. Let's just ditch that whole idea. No. Think of the promises he makes to Abraham. He doesn't just promise, I'm going to make you into a great people, and I'm going to be your God. But he says, and I am going to give you a great land. The story of salvation we come back to again and again is God's people under God's rule in God's place. That's a very physical reality. And in fact, it's so important that three of the first books of the Bible are really focused on that. We, we spoke of a couple of weeks ago of how in Genesis, once you get beyond the promises of Abraham, it's largely about God fulfilling the promise of making a people. In Exodus and Leviticus, it's all focused on the promise of God becoming their God and living among them. But then when you get to Numbers and Deuteronomy and even Joshua, the very center is this focus on God giving his people his land. That's how important it is. It's a very physical reality that we're talking about when we're talking about how God is redeeming and rescuing. And so what do we see when we look at that story? Now, when you're looking at three books of the Bible, we can only look in the most cursory fashion. But there are two things that come out really clearly, and that is that God, the way that he shows his goodness and his kindness and his generosity is how he provides through the land. And then on our end, the way that we express our faith is by taking hold of the land. That's what we see in this, that really the land is the arena, the sphere in which the relationship between God and us is experienced. That's what we see. Let me, let me explain a little bit more. Let's, let's look through this story. You get to the very beginning of Numbers. Now, I've said this before, but I'll say this again. When, you, when you're reading through the Bible in one year and you kind of are trying to read it chronologically, here's another place where you kind of get stuck. Because everyone, when they think of numbers, they think of exactly what the name means. Numbers. There's all this counting that happens at the beginning. And it's just, you know, like, like tribe after tribe and it's really hard. To, and, then, and then after that, when you finally gotten through that, then it starts talking about where all the tribes are going to be sitting when they're gathering together and, and rules about the tabernacles. Like, what is going on? Well, here's what's going on. They are preparing. They're getting ready to march. And all of this preparation is geared towards one thing. It's, toward, it's, it's towards taking hold of the gift that God wants to give them. So in chapter 10, after these preparations are made, Moses kind of gives us an insight into what all of this is about when he says, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. God is giving us a gift and it's, uh, it's time for us to take it. And he says, beyond, the Lord has promised good to Israel. So do you hear that, that when it's talking about the land, it's like the land is seen as the gift that God wants to give. It's his way of expressing his grace and his goodness to his people. And that's when we get to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the best way of understanding is Deuteronomy is a, a guidebook for how to live in the land. It's right before they get in the land. It's like now that you're about to enter the land, this is how to understand it. And when it speaks of the land, it 
always, or almost always, when it speaks of the land, always gives it a name. It is the land the Lord your God is giving you. He can't say the word land without saying the Lord your God is giving you. 28 times that happens because when they're thinking land, they should again and again think gift. And it's not just this kind of Spartan, well, you know, you can live there. It's what you need to be able to keep moving. It's, it's luxurious. It's described as a land flowing with milk and honey, which is this symbol of abundance. God at one point in, Deuter- I mean, in Deuteronomy says his desire is to make them prosperous in the land, to pour out his generosity so that they are beyond full and satisfied and joyful in the land. And, and this land is going to be this constant reminder of God's care for them. He says, this land's not going to be like it was in, in, in Egypt. In Egypt, the river irrigates. Here, this land, it is the rain coming down from heaven so that every time the land is nurtured, you can notice that I am taking care of it. I am sending rain. So again and again, as you are living in the land, you can realize I am gracious. Do you see, the whole thing about land is so that people can experience the grace of God. Because how else, how do we experience anything? We experience things physically. That's who we are. And so God is saying, I am gracious and I'm going to pour my grace upon you physically. It's, it's like he is a fantastic host. I mean, we've probably been before over someone's house where the, the moment we get in, they offer us something to drink, and there's an appetizer, and then there's dinner, and they keep offering more and more and more, and we are so full, but they're wanting to just pour out their generosity on us, and the reason is they want us to know that we are loved, right? And really what God is saying is, here's my home, come home. You are my children, come home. Let me, let me show you my generosity to you by pouring out my hospitality upon you as you enter the land. The land is, is the expression of God's grace. It is his gift. It is the land he is giving. And at the same time, the land is something that Israel is called to take hold of by faith. So as often as it says, the land the Lord your God is giving to you, half of the time it says, so that you might possess the land the Lord your God has given you. It's implying that there's a taking involved. We see that actually in the passage that Ruthie read. Verse 8 lays this out pretty clearly. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. The Lord is promised this land. He gives it to you. Now, It's up to you to take hold of this gift by faith. So that's that's what Deuteronomy says the goal is, but we also see in these opening verses that there is some kind of tragic irony. It's it's something that's easy to miss, but I don't know if you noticed, but early on it says it's an 11 days journey from Horeb, which is another word for Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea. That's basically where they are. They're right near Kadesh Barnea. It's 11 days journey, and then it says in the 40th year. And so you're supposed to wonder, wait a second, why does it take 40 years to take 11 days to get from Sinai to the Promised Land? And that's the story that Numbers tells. You know, they, you, know you have, we, you know, back to where we were in chapter 10 and 11, you have God's people in, in this perfect formation. 
And, and the ark, whenever they go, the ark would go forward, symbolizing that God is leading them in the direction they are to go. And all 12 tribes are following in perfect formation. And they get finally to this border of the promised lands. And so they send, each tribe sends a spy, 12, stri- tri- 12 spies go into Canaan, to the promised land. And they spend a few weeks looking to see what it looks like, to see what the defenses look like. And they come back and all 12 agree on one thing. It is a beautiful land. This is glorious. This is truly a land flowing with milk and honey, they say. But 10 of them are pretty despondent. They say, these defenses are impenetrable. The armies are mighty. The walls are strong. We have hit a dead end. They they are really viewing the world in a materialist way. All they can see is what is in front of them, and they are hopeless. But there are two other spies, Joshua and Caleb, who say, no, wait, 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 wait. God is with us, and nothing can stand in God's way. So if God is going before us and he wants to give it to us, let's take it. He's, they're calling them to take this by faith because God has promised it to them. But the, but the people of Israel will hear nothing of these two spies. They even actually want to kill them because they just don't even want to hear what they have to say. They start groaning. They start feeling tons of anxiety. They say, oh no, our wives and our children are going to get killed. Would that we have stayed in the wilderness. Then we would be better off. You know, God in his judgment oftentimes gives us exactly what we ask for. And that's what he does here. He says, if you're not willing to take hold of my promise by faith, I will send you into the wilderness and you will die in the wilderness. And that's what happens. That's the reason they spend 40 years so that that entire generation that refused to trust in God's promises would die out. But God preserved them. He protected them. He gave them food and enabled the next generation to come back. And this time the generation trusted And so step by step, as the ark led them, they walked into the promised land. This is the story of Joshua. And it wasn't easy. There were battles. There were even occasional failures. There was marching around Jericho, which seemed like a strange thing before Jericho fell. It it was not an easy thing. But step by step, as they were led, taking hold of it by faith, they received the gift that God had for them. And so we see in these three books, these two themes, that God is a gracious God and the land is the way he shows his love. And that our calling in faith is to take hold of the land. That's how we express our response to God. So the question, of course, that that I think occurs to us is, what, what relevance does this have to us today? What relevance does God's promise to Abraham I will give you this land, have towards us? It's an important question to ask. I hope you recognize, although I don't know if I've ever explicitly stated, that that one of the convictions guiding this exploration of the story of Scripture is that when God gave promises to Abraham, those promises don't just extend to ethnic Israel. Those promises are made to us as well. Why? Because we are children of Abraham. The Apostle Paul says this really clearly in Galatians. He says, Jesus is the great child of Abraham. And all of us who have believed in Jesus, we are joined into Christ and we become part of God's family. In fact, we become part of Abraham's family. It's why we sing that kid's song if you grew up in Sunday school. Father Abraham had many sons, you know, the rest, and there's a left arm, right arm. I am one of them and so are you. It's declaring the reality that we are children of Abraham. We are heirs of the promises. 
These promises are being made not just to Abraham, but to us as well. And so that's why when we spoke of God promising a great people, we can now say, look around. Look at this church. Look at the church throughout the world. We're experiencing God's promise to Abraham being fulfilled. He made a great people. And when we spoke last week of the promise to have a relationship, a great relationship with his people, we can say, look at what Jesus has done for us, that we don't need to be afraid. We can come to God fearlessly in a relationship with him because of what Christ has done for us. These promises are fulfilled to us. But what about the promise of the land? When God says, I'm going to give you a great land, how is that fulfilled for us? Well, there's a couple different opinions of how to interpret that. If you grew up dispensationalist or you're familiar with that, you know that some will argue that that promise is exactly what it sounds like and nothing more. That God is saying ethnic Israel is going to get geographic Israel in the Middle East. And when that happens, that promise is fulfilled, the end. But here's the problem with that. One is what I've already mentioned. The Bible says we are children of Abraham. We are heirs of the promise. And what's more, you get this interesting part in Romans where Paul says, God told, you know, God promised Abraham that he would be heir of all the worlds. That's bigger than just, you know, the Middle East. In other words, Paul is saying that when God was making these promises of this land, that, that was just the beginning that what God was basically saying to Abraham is, this is the beginning of me giving you the whole world. So I think it's wrong to say it's just something that limited. But sometimes people go the opposite way and say, these promises of the land, as we try to interpret what they mean for us, it's really a spiritual reality. What, what God is promising us is heaven. And by heaven, they mean this spiritual reality. He's promising that we will experience the presence of God, and a perfect relationship with him. And that's what's being promised. And there's not really anything physical left in this, this promise that I'm going to make a great place for you. But that's not biblical either. Think of what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. We looked at this last year. Blessed are the meek for what? They shall inherit the earth. And that word earth is exactly what it sounds like. It means ground. It means dirt. It means land. When we get to Romans 8, Paul speaks of the hope of redemption. And the redemption is not just a spiritual redemption. It talks about how this world, this creation, this thing that we're in right now is groaning, longing for the day that it will be redeemed. That's a physical redemption that's being spoken of. And perhaps the clearest indication that there is a physical reality that should be part of our hope in the future is the very heart of the gospel. When Jesus died and when he rose again, he did not just rise again spiritually. He brought the stuff of this world back to life. He came back to life with, with sinews and with bones and flesh and taste buds. This world was redeemed when Jesus rose from the dead. So what's the promise that we should be expecting when, when God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, how should we understand that promise to us? Well, quite simply, God is promising to you and to me an inheritance, and that inheritance is this world that we're sitting in and standing on right now. 
It's not just some dim spiritual reality. It's not just heaven where we're going to be having an internal church service. No wonder people don't find Christianity interesting if that's all it is. It is this world. That's, that's what scripture promises us. See, we, I think, get confused by the language of heaven. When we think of heaven, we oftentimes think of it as a place, way beyond the blue or whatever that line is. But, but heaven isn't a place. It's not like there's some, some special compartment in this universe or some door in this universe to a parallel universe. It's not a second place. You know, when, when we speak of angels, they're oftentimes spoken of as the heavenly army. But where do the angels work? They work in this world, not in some sort of separate universe. Or, or Jesus is spoken of as one who sits enthroned in heaven. But, but where is he reigning over. It's not like there's this other world that Jesus is in charge of, but this world he's left. No, he reigns over this world. See, what heaven is describing is it's speaking of those invisible realities that are a part of this world, like angels and demons and the reign of Christ. We don't see it. It's hard for us to see how Jesus reigns over. It's hard for us to see that God is sovereign, but it is truly here and part of this reality. And see, the hope of the Christian, the promise of the Bible, is those things that we don't see right now but are real will one day appear. So we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven, that heaven would start changing earth. Or we also have in Revelation, what we looked at right near the beginning of the service, what's the great hope that we have? That the new city of Jerusalem comes out of heaven and comes down and touches an earth so that the earth is changed, so that what is invisible but real will one day become visible. So when you think of heaven, don't think so much of a place. Think of time. Heaven is that reality that we don't see right now, but one day we will see. So when scripture says you are seated with Christ in heaven, it's saying right now you don't realize it, but you already are citizens of the kingdom. You already are belonging to Christ. You're already holy, but you don't see it right now. But one day you will. When it says set your hearts on things above, that's a metaphor, and it's not saying what we really want is the stars way up in the sky. No, it's saying those heavenly realities, set your heart on the future because that's where your hope is. Right now, this world is not the way that it's meant to be, but one day it will be. Our heavenly reality that we're focusing on is not something outside of this world. It's this world in its future form. That's where our hope is. Yes, this world is going to be different in some ways. There's not going to be any more suffering. There's not going to be any more death. There's not going to be any more evil tearing it apart. And we're also told that when Jesus returns, there's not going to be any more giving birth or marriage. It will definitely be different. But when we are imagining what God is promising us when he's talking about a redemption and I will give you a place. Again, we should not imagine sitting on clouds with harps. We should not imagine one long church service where we're just singing. We should imagine gardening and exploring and, and cold lemonade on a warm summer's evening and, and sand between our toes of the beach because 
we are physical creatures. And God didn't make a mistake when he made us physical creatures. That was the way that he designed things. That's the way that he shows his kindness and hospitality and love for us. In that future when we are enjoying all of these things, our heart will be filled with song because everything that we enjoy physically we will realize is another piece of God showing his love towards us. And our hearts will be filled with praise. That's our great hope. God's promise for redemption is to give us a home and that home is this world except made new. This world made the way it's meant to be, not some airy-fairy out there thing. And our calling, our response, just like it was for Israel, is to take hold of this gift by faith. See, we're in a time right now where essentially we're on the edge of the promised land, and all we see are what daunts us. We feel the realities of suffering. We see death. We know that's what each of us face. And the reality of what God promises us seems so immaterial and unlikely. And so it's the easiest thing in the world for us, like, like the people of Israel, to say, I want to go back. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to my idolatries. I want to just kind of live the, rest, the way the rest of the world does, as if this is all that there is. I want to just try to get the most toys, the most pleasure. That's the most natural thing for us to do because we're afraid. But God promises that he has a world for us and it's something that we want. It is a world that satisfies our deepest desires and not just spiritual desires, whatever that means, but our deepest physical desires as well because that's the way that he made us. Our calling is to endure. You know, the writer of Hebrews looks exactly at this section of the Bible and he speaks of the people of Israel were given a promise and yet when they came to the door of receiving the promise, they failed. And it says, you take care lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart. It says, we have come to share in Christ. And by sharing in Christ, saying we have an inheritance with Christ. If we hold our original confidence until the end. Your calling and my calling is to hold this confidence until the end. That God knows us and loves us and he has promised us a home that is this world. Our calling is like it was for Israel to follow what lies before us. And in the Old Testament, it was the ark. For us, it's Christ. As he calls us to take a step of faith, and, and for each of us, that can look different. Sometimes it is saying no to things that we want. Sometimes it is devoting ourselves to certain things, but it is knowing who Christ is and following him in obedience and mission to the world. And our calling is to endure step by step, knowing that as we do, God will give us the land he has promised. In a moment, we are going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper. It is a supper that is meant not only to look backward to what Christ has done for us in dying and rising again, but to look forward to that great feast that we will enjoy when Christ returns. But I'd like now for us to take a moment just to prepare our hearts as we think about what it means for us to endure, to be faithful. There might be ways that we have wavered, that we have turned from God in different forms of disobedience or doubt. And here's a good chance for us to confess and to pray for endurance and to turn our hearts to God as well. Would you please join with me in silent prayer and then I'll lead us in a moment.
Lord God, you know our hearts. Um, You know our tendency to set our hearts on the creation apart from you because we don't realize that you have purposes to give us creation through you. And so we look elsewhere other than you, not realizing that you know our needs, you know our desires, and that you love us so deeply that you will fill everyone. Lord, forgive us for when we doubt you. Forgive us when we try to fill ourselves on other things rather than allowing you to fill us. Lord, where we have chosen disobedience because of doubt, we ask for forgiveness. We ask that you would give us hearts to follow you more faithfully. And we pray that you would enable us to endure and hold on to the real hope that we have through Christ Jesus of the home that we will one day have. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, hear the good news of the gospel and hear what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Through his death and resurrection, our eternal home is secure. Thanks be to God.